If you have your Bibles, turn to Esther, the book of Esther, right before Job. We'll be looking at chapter 3, Esther chapter 3. So I have a quick question for you. You ever felt belittled, marginalized? Maybe it was that kid in school that picked on you when you were growing up. Maybe some of us were that kid that picked on others. And you decided you weren't going to take it anymore. You've had enough. You couldn't take the constant belittling that you were enduring. You didn't want to have it just stop. You wanted to get even. In fact, you wanted them to go through more pain than you did. Little did you know, you went from victim to oppressor in a very short time span. And today, as we look at God's Word in Esther chapter 3, we're going to look at three things specifically with a man named Haman and what he did when he was disrespected and belittled, if you will. We're going to look at three things here in this text. Number one, the refusal, verses 1 through 4. Number two, the disdain, verses 5 through 6. And number three, the decree, verses 7 through 15. So the title of this book actually comes from the main character, Esther. The writer does not actually identify themselves, but it's most, it's most likely that it's not Esther that would have written this book. It would have been another author. But whoever it is that wrote this book is very familiar with Persian history and their culture and practice. It's viewed more as a book of encouragement to the Jewish people as they would then return to the promised land after the exile with Ezra back to Jerusalem. In fact, what we have here in the text before, to just set the context of this, this passage, Esther is a young Jewish lady, is actually a girl, who became queen when Vashti, the queen of Ahasuerus, refused to become a part of his drunken party, where he would show off her to other men. She is one of many virgins that was brought to the palace and the one that caught the eye of the king, who favored her above the rest. Now, Mordecai, who we read about here in this text, and we're going to get to that here in a moment, he actually is her uncle who took her under his wing while her parents had actually passed away, and he raised her. Esther had merged into the Persian kingdom quite well. In fact, she was indistinguishable. When the king had brought her in, she did not reveal to him, under the advice of Mordecai, that she was Jewish which we later will see came to her benefit in Haman's plot. In fact, Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill the king, and he mentions it to Esther, who actually saves the king in time and has the men that had conspired hanged for their treason. So let's take a look at the first point here, the refusal, verses 1 through 4, as we caught up to speed here in this chapter. Listen to what the text says. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, 
and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So here in chapter 3, we find out that Haman is promoted. He's promoted to a high position. In fact, he may have been a chief advisor to the king himself, almost at the status of Daniel that we've talked about recently. In his promotion, the king actually commanded that others would bow and show honor to Haman. Now, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, refuses to do so. And there can be actually a few different reasons for that. Uh, Most people stick to one reason, and they really haven't looked through the cultural background. I'm just going to mention a few of them here. One of the reasons may be because Haman was an Agagite, which means he's possibly connected to the Amalekites. A lot of commentators believe that which would be in direct opposition to the Jewish people. If you remember history, history was not kind when it came to that conflict between those two nations. In fact, that would actually be a very good possibility that that's one of the reasons why Mordecai did not bow. In fact, one of the the scholars that I read actually said that it's very possible that Haman had a symbol on his chest from one of those false idols that may have set Mordecai off. Number two, another reason might be that Mordecai didn't like Haman's pride. We see that very clearly here in the text and the way that he presented himself. He wanted to make sure everybody honored him and respected him. And number three, which is the most prominent view, most people hold this position, is Mordecai just wanted to honor God and and not bowing before another man. The, The reason why the third view is held is because people want to give Mordecai the benefit of the doubt that he's wanting to honor God. But let me just kind of give you a little historical uh, basis for the fact that this position may be not as strong as we might assume. In fact, um, others actually bowed in a sign of respect in the Old Testament. I don't know if you knew that. In fact, Moses bows before his father-in-law, Jethro, in an act of respect. Abraham bows before the sons of Heth after Sarah's death. So there are multiple instances where people of God bow before others in respect. It was not in a sense of worship that some people may want to connect, but it was in a sign of respect to others. So we see here that as we move into the text, there's something that happens. And the second thing we're going to look at here is the disdain. Verses 5 and 6, look at this. It says this, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay lay hands on Mordecai alone, For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Here we find that Haman is enraged that he didn't get the respect that he deserves. He's not just a little bothered by it. He's enraged. So let's pause for a second here. The Bible has plenty of application for us, okay? Let's ask this question, okay? 
Ask yourself this question, hopefully internally. Don't answer out loud. How do you respond when you feel disrespected? How do you, feel, how do you respond when you feel disrespected? All of us have been disrespected at different points in our lives. Whether it's at a job, whether it's here at church, whether it's in our home. Maybe I'm the only one that has that happen. We all have, right? So, so how do you respond? Do you, do you get angry like Haman does here? Do you know people that just absolutely flip right away when someone doesn't respect them? Do, do you throw a temper tantrum? Get really angry because someone didn't show you the respect you deserve? Or is your anger more quiet? It stews internally, right? Until you see that big explosion one day. Do you find a reason to get even and do them harm? Do you have that intention sometimes? That you really don't just want to have it go away, you want some harm to come to that person. After all, they disrespected you. Do you wallow in self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself because you were disrespected? Can I suggest that many times we go through all sorts of these emotions in one scenario? We may start with being enraged to wallowing in self-pity later on, to wanting to exact revenge on somebody. And the next opportunity we get to get that person, we take it. We need to put them in their place, right? Our pride was hurt, right? Mordecai was approached by the king's servants, possibly co-workers of his. I mean, they really just kind of went to Mordecai and said, hey, why don't you just bow to Haman? I mean, why don't you just do that? Mordecai responds with the fact that he is a Jew, and that is why he will not bow. Interesting point. Now, after getting angry for the response from Mordecai, Haman realizes something else about Mordecai he doesn't like. He's a Jew. He's not just upset that Mordecai didn't show him the respect that he deserves. He went after his ethnicity. For Haman, the fury is at the level of disdain to not only get back at Mordecai, but also to include the people that he's associated with, the Jewish people. Haman took an offense between him and someone else and decided that other Jews must pay for it as well. Remember, Mordecai is actually no rebel. Mordecai was no renegade here. He actually saved the king from getting killed and exposing a plot to eliminate him. Mordecai was no rebel. Haman decided that Mordecai was this way because of his ethnicity. And this experience made him tie in Mordecai to the rest of the Jewish population. That had nothing to do with the situation at all. But they were to be charged guilty because Mordecai disrespected Haman to the point of extermination. 
It's also possible that Haman already had a strong hatred for the Jews. But once he found out that Mordecai was Jewish, it just lit that fuse and set him over the edge. That one more thing to confirm his already preconceived notions. Now, lots of application here. If only our culture would actually hear God's word and see that this is nothing new. Just because one person did you or me wrong does not mean that others need to pay as well. It doesn't mean that everybody that looks like them, believes like them, has the same position of authority as them, is the same ethnicity as them, should be stereotyped in the same way. And judge under the same condemnation we impose on that one person that did us wrong. Yet what's going on in our culture? The very thing that Haman does here. We're going to blame everybody else for that one person that did us wrong. It's absolutely scary to think that many of the grievances that people have are with people that they've never met. Whether it's their ethnicity, religious background, or even a simple political difference comes based on one experience with someone from that group they now castigate. We've decided to punish all others that look like them, practice their religion like them, who vote like them because one person that we know from this category did us wrong. And they all need to be discarded at all costs. Now let me ask you, believer, is that a way that we can reach people with the gospel then? No. There's no way. Be very careful about stereotypes. And whether you like to admit it, and I don't want to, I'd like to admit it, we actually all have them. We all have stereotypes. The difficulty is admitting what yours are. Now, I don't know how many of you remember this last year. Remember the Ukrainian guy that mowed over seven bikers last year? Can I, can I just say, as somebody that comes from Ukraine, I'm glad you all didn't go after all Ukrainians because that one guy did that. But sadly, that's what's going on in our culture. We're taking one incident that somebody did against people, and we're blowing it out of proportion and blaming the entire group. I'm glad you didn't associate Pastor Roman as guilty because he has a Ukrainian background. Yeah, this is what's gone on throughout human history. And you have to understand, believer, this will continue to go on throughout human history. Don't get caught in the cycle. Let me be practical here in case you think it's everybody else. You could say, because I know a bitter woman, all women are bitter. Never heard that stereotype, right? Or, because my man won't stand up for anything, all men are wimps. They're cowards. Because my boss was a jerk, all bosses are jerks. You see where I'm going? Here's a real sad one. 
And sadly, it's, it's very true in the world today. And it really affects a person's perspective of God, our Heavenly Father. Because my father abused me as a child, all fathers are abusive. You think that one, in, one interaction with somebody doesn't affect other perspectives of other people and possibly even your relationship with God? It does. Because whatever ethnicity, fill in the blank, they did this to me, all of them are like this. There are plenty of people from different ethnicities, ethnic backgrounds, who are definitely stereotyped simply because of one interaction someone had. It's disgusting. I want to really make this point clear. Don't let your defense of one group of people lead to an automatic hatred of another group. Don't let your defense of one group of people lead to an automatic hatred of another group of people. Look, if you're conservative, you don't have to hate all liberals. If you're a liberal, you don't need to hate all conservatives. That's not how it works. At least it shouldn't work that way. Let's put it that way. As one author points out here for this text, he says this, this is a chapter in the life of the Jew that has been duplicated many, many times. When you read this chapter, you can almost substitute the name of Pharaoh instead of Haman. Or you can substitute the name of Hitler or Nasser. In fact, there are many names that would fit in here. There has never been a time since Israel became a nation down in the land of Egypt to the present moment that there has not been a movement somewhere to exterminate them. Pay attention, believer. There are people right now still aiming for this. Haman was not just going to stew about this and his hatred for Mordecai. He was going to find somebody that could do something about it, legally speaking, of course. Third point we're going to look at, the decree. Verses 7 through 15. Look at this. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, that is the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they, may, they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. 
In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as a law in every province being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. What's interesting about Haman is he actually dabbles a lot with the occult practice of astrology. You see that he actually casts lots to try to figure out what the best time to execute this plan is. Interestingly enough, this would have been around the time the Jewish people would have been celebrating Passover, their actual deliverance from Egypt. Now look at Haman's strategy here in the text. It's very interesting. Notice how he starts off his proposition. It's very vague, right? There is a certain people, certain people. King, there's a certain group of people that don't want to obey your laws. He doesn't give any specifics, does he? Just generically throws something out there. Haman never mentions that they're Jews, that he's trying to have the king assume are rebellious towards him. In fact, he says, these people need to be eliminated, king. They're a threat to you. The benefit in this process, king, is that we'll add a lot of wealth to the treasury. The implication is, here in the text, that they would plunder the Jewish people before destroying them. It's just not right that they live here, king. They're hurting you. They're hurting this kingdom. What Haman's actually essentially telling the king is these people are dangerous to our society. Or in a modern vernacular, maybe you've heard this on the news, this is extremely dangerous for our democracy. Folks, history always repeats itself. Don't be shocked when you read the Bible and then all of a sudden you're seeing something very applicable to today. People don't change all that much. In fact, we're all the same thing. We're sinners, and apart from grace, we're wicked. And our wickedness knows no bounds. What's scary is that the most prosperous and distinguished citizens are the Jewish people that Haman wants to destroy. And he wants to set this tone before the king that they are guilty of treason. They are opposed to him. What a sick proposal. Nothing new has happened even when you go back to Egypt. When you go back to Egypt, the same thing occurred. And the Jewish people, as they were growing in number and prosperity, guess what happened? Same thing. We can't let that happen. If you study history, you will always see the cycle constantly repeat itself. Frankly, it never stops. And it won't stop until Jesus is a king. 
In fact, a mixed group of people, whether it's culturally different or different classes economically, will live together in a society with many different qualities of life, a different amount of money that they've been raised with, differences in family structure, one parent versus two or multiple. As time goes on, there's typically three roles that people in a society that are on the brink of destruction play. If you want to read a little more about this, I would recommend reading The Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn. He's an excellent Russian author who actually went through the troubles of communism in Russia. And also a more simplified book, which would be Dr. Karpman's A Game-Free Life, if you want to see this spelled out in kind of simpler terms when it comes to relationship. There are three different roles that typically people play in society. There's the victim role, there's the oppressor role, and then there's the rescuer. So let me break some of this down. The victim is a person or a group of people that sees life happening and feels absolutely powerless to change the situation they're in. Poor me, I've been mistreated. The, very, the victim is very sensitive to what others have said to them or did not show when they were supposed to be appreciated for something. They view themselves oppressed by another individual or group and they blame their mishaps or, or problems on whoever they consider the oppressor to be. Although at times what's interesting is that they go to the oppressor to actually try to fix their problems. Now let's be honest for a second. Every one of us has been here a time or two in our lives. What we're referring to is a systematic pattern where it literally is something that infuses into a cultural setting. And people are stewing with resentment towards others that they, have a fi they find an utter disdain for. In fact, here's what's interesting. That's Haman here in this text. Now, you'd be, you're probably wondering, well, wait a second. Haman's not really a victim. All Mordecai didn't do was just bow to him and all that and you know, show him the respect that he wanted. But he viewed himself as a victim. It wasn't that big of a deal. He wouldn't have gone after other people. He was ready to lash out. And not just at Mordecai, but the rest of the Jewish population for the disrespect he received. So the second group of people is the oppressor. It's typically somebody that holds power over the victim. Maybe they aren't flexible in their stance. Maybe they're viewed as a villain because they've done something that's an inconvenience to the victim. Or may, they may actually hurt the victim's pride or even the economic bottom line of the victim. Some may be true oppressors and some may be perceived oppressors. You need to understand that there's a difference. There are true oppressors, people that really do destroy other people in society, and those that may be perceived oppressors. It's a group of people, typically, that others gather together to oppose simply because someone told them to do that. In this text, Mordecai is viewed as the oppressor by Haman just because he was not willing to bow to him to the point that Haman doesn't only want to go after him. He wants to include others like him. They are oppressors in Haman's eyes. Now, historically speaking, do you think the Amalekites would have been thrilled to have Jewish people around them? No. Why not? Anybody remember what Saul had to deal with? Guess what? 
Not all of them were out of commission. They still were around. That tension was still there. Part of that plays into the situation. So you've got the oppressor, and then the third group, typically in a society, are the rescuers, or what we would like to call the heroes of society, right? They're the ones that actually want to help the victim and may ultimately be in it, ultimately only for themselves. They are there to solve the problem, if you will. But normally, for the rescuer, there's a sense of duty that it comes from, or even a cause to help those victims to the point of really only trying to benefit themselves. What they end up doing, though, is many times enabling the victim to become the oppressor. You can check all these things that I'm saying out. This is historically proven in every society. In delivering or rescuing the victim, they've enabled them to become the oppressor by simply shifting power away from the oppressor to the victim. Oh, they're doing you wrong? Now you're going to do them wrong. You've had it so bad, let's make them pay for it. Here's what we see in verses 10 and 11. Look at this. The king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. And then in verse 11, the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Wow, what a proposal, huh? Blank check. Whatever you want, Haman. Do what you want. The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Haman plays what's in it for the king. The king responds by giving Haman a blank check to do whatever he wants. The victim, or I would say the supposed victim, has now just become the oppressor. And not just to Mordecai, but to the rest of the Jewish population. So what does Haman do with this blank check that he's been given? He proposes an extermination of all the Jewish people. How's that not blowing a problem out of proportion? You did me wrong, Mordecai. All the Jews are paying. You don't think that's appropriate for today's culture that we live in? You don't think the Bible, in, in some way, shape, or form, gives us a context every time we see chaos in our nation? But here's what's interesting. Before doing so, he wants to make sure that he plunders the Jews. We're going to take all the money we can from them first before we eliminate them. So you and I, we step back and we're just absolutely shocked over this. How could this one incident lead to such crazy proposal. Now, in case you feel like I'm out of left field when I talk to you about these things, I want you to remember a famous guy, okay, in history. He wrote Mein Kampf, which means my struggle. In case you're wondering who that is, Hitler. You think he didn't play the victim card? 
Oh, sure he did. And guess what he did with that victim card? The very thing Haman did right here. I'm going to exterminate the Jewish population. If you don't think that capacity lies in every one of our hearts, then you don't know the heart that you have. Our heart's filled with wickedness. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, we'd all go down this path. Let me just say this, and I want to repeat myself on this. I know I said this earlier. God's word is always relevant, believer. Always. Doesn't matter what's going on in the culture, there's always something that God can still speak to. In the time that we live in, the very anger that Haman had towards Mordecai is the same anger people have towards one another right now. We have a country that is called the United States of America. And we are far from a united country. We have sides that people have picked and decided to ostracize everybody else on the other side of that fence. To the point where they're not just ostracizing people, they want their destruction. Give me my pound of flesh, if you will. And what's interesting is everybody's looking for a rescue or a hero to save the day. Let me just say this clearly. No amount of reforms, bailouts, stimulus packages will solve the problems that we are facing in this nation. Because it goes deeper. It's in the heart. Any of the things that we get helped with outside of God and His Word will only be temporary fixes. You and I need heart surgery. We need a new heart, completely. Because the heart that we're born with is wicked. And don't just assume that it's wicked in someone else, it's wicked in you. So in conclusion, I have one question to ask. We're closing today. Who are you looking to save you? Who are you looking to save you? I mean, is it the government? Does the government provide you something that you need that will give you some security? Maybe it's your family. Got a wife and kids. I've got the things I want. Is it your spouse? I'm no longer alone. I'm married, so I'm good. Is it your church? No one, apart from Christ, can give you the security that you need and the salvation that you really need. There are many things that will help us temporarily, but the very thing that you and I need is something that's permanent and eternal that affects our heart. We have a hero. And you know what? That hero is Jesus Christ. And he's a hero that never, never asked from others what he wasn't willing to do himself. Ever. He sacrificed his life for us so that now we can sacrifice our lives for the gospel and others. If you've not trusted in Christ today, you will continue to be a victim of sin. In fact, Scripture actually says that you're a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. The only freedom that can be found is freedom in Christ. Don't wait until it's too late. 
If you have not trusted Christ today, pray and ask Him to come and be your Savior. Repent of your sin. Turn from the very wickedness that you have in your heart. And if you don't know where to start, let me recommend visiting our website. Go to the Discipleship tab. Start by jumping into the Word of God if you've not been reading. Get back into it if you haven't stopped. Get back into fellowship with God and His Word. And I promise you, God is going to change you from the inside out. And all that wickedness that you only see in others, you'll start seeing in yourself. But that's a good thing because God will start cleansing you. He'll start taking that stuff out of your life. And at the end, you're going to shine bright in glory because He's going to conform you to the image of Christ. Let's pray.